Hi. So our first Bible reading for tonight comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. And you can find it on page 1106 on most of the Pew Bibles. Or you can follow along on the screen. Cool. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Good evening, everyone. Second Bible reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, and is found at the bottom of page 936. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands, commandments and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid every last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for reading God's word for us. And let's just pray before we uh, consider what it means and how it applies to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity 
and the privilege of studying your word in this place. And I pray that you'll help each of us to have listening ears, that you'll hear what uh, the Lord Jesus has to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount and how this applies to us today in our own lives. And so we do pray for your blessing upon uh, what we're about to do now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been attending this church for quite some time now and I, I feel as though I know some of you quite well. I know some of you much better than I know others and I get the impression from looking at you that you're pretty good people. You're a good bunch. And, and if I think that there were some new people here and if you're a visitor, welcome. If you got to know lots of the people here, you would think that they're, they're good people too and that they're, they're living what we might call righteous lives. And some of you people, you've, you've been to my home and when you've left, I can't remember any items going missing, apart from the food perhaps. <laughs> On the outside, you've, you've behaved pretty well. And as far as I know, there are no convicted murderers amongst us. And, and I've talked to many of you and I've never heard any of you uh, using God's name as a swear word. And if I was asked to ask you tonight, if you were to make a list of all the things that you do to show that you're living a righteous life, it's quite possible that this list would be a pretty impressive list of do's and don'ts that you that you achieve in your life. But is this the kind of righteous life that Jesus wants from his followers? And tonight, as we look at this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to remind us that to be his followers, our righteousness isn't simply about ticking boxes about what we've done and what we haven't done. And that the fact is, if we think about living righteous lives, um, we need to remember that we could be in danger of becoming modern-day Pharisees. You see, back in the time of Jesus, there was a group of religious men, and they were called Pharisees, and they were super serious about keeping the law. They were extremely careful about not breaking any of the religious rules that had been set down. But despite all this fastidious law-keeping, Jesus said they had not understood what, what righteousness really was, what righteous living was. So how can this be that we've got this group of people who are so meticulous, they're so careful about obeying the law, but they get things so wrong? And if the Pharisees have got things so wrong, is it possible that we've got things wrong as well? Have we misunderstood what righteous living is? So tonight, as we think about the kind of righteous lives that God wants us to live, we're going to work through this passage and see how we can apply this to us today. And if you were here last week, and hopefully you were, but if you don't, um, Jesus began his sermon by describing the characteristics of those in his kingdom. And then he described their distinctiveness, to be salt and light. Now, for many of us here tonight, the words of Jesus will be very familiar. But for everyone back then, listening to Jesus, this teaching would have seemed something very new, something even very unexpected. And they would have been thinking, who is this guy? You know, And what's this new teaching? He hasn't been to the theological college and... You know, he's, you know, what's he teaching? What's going on here? You see, these people who were listening, they were Jews. 
And they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and they would have been evaluating everything that Jesus said in relation to the Old Testament. They would have been saying, what about the law of God? The law of God is our standard for living. So Jesus explains that what he's been teaching in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount and what he's about to teach is not contradicting the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, Jesus says in verse 17 that he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he's come to fulfil them. He isn't changing or lowering the demands of the Old Testament. In fact, we'll soon see that the demands of the law are far greater than what we expect. So if Jesus says that he hasn't come to get rid of the law and the prophets, what does it mean that he's come to fulfil them? And if I can put this as simply as I can, it means that the whole of the Old Testament, and that's what's meant here by the law and the prophets, it's the whole of the Old Testament, it's pointing in a certain direction. Both the law, that's all the laws in the Old Testament, and everything that's written in all the prophetic books, they are signposts. They're heading in a certain direction. And they're heading to some future person or event. And Jesus is saying that everything you've read in the Old Testament... It's all about me. He says the same kind of thing in Luke 24, in verse 27. We had it on the screen earlier on. After Jesus had been raised from the dead, he's walking with some of his followers, and they're confused, they're disappointed, they don't really understand what all this means, and he explains the Old Testament scriptures to them. In verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And then just a little further on in Luke 24, Jesus, he's again with his disciples and he says to them in verse 44, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. There is a direction in which the Old Testament is heading and it finds its fulfilment in Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in many ways. And if we think about the three main positions or offices in the uh, Old Testament, they were prophet, priest and king. The role of the prophet was to speak of God's to speak God's word to the people. The role of the priest was to offer sacrifices and prayers and praise to God on behalf of the people. And the role of the king was to rule over the nation of Israel. And we'll see that these three offices were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. As prophet, Jesus reveals God to us and speaks God's word to us. As priest, he offers both a sacrifice on our behalf and is in himself the sacrifice that is offered. And as the king, he rules over both the church and the entire universe. And he goes on to say to his disciples that you can be absolutely sure that everything contained in the Old Testament will be accomplished. Every single prophecy will be fulfilled right down to the last detail. There is no possible way that something that God wants fulfilled won't be fulfilled. In verse 18 it says that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So we can see that Jesus indeed fulfills 
all of the Old Testament. But what does this mean for us? How does Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament have any significance for us? What good is it for us that Jesus comes as the one who not only fulfills all the law, but meets all the requirements of the law by living a perfect holy life? Well, we need to understand firstly that Jesus is saying that the requirements of the law, they still stand. Remember that Jesus said he hasn't come to abolish the law. One of the characteristics of God is that he's unchanging and therefore the demands of the law, they're unchanging. And what does the law demand? The law of God requires that is to be kept perfectly. The law was given in the Old Testament to explain how his people are to live now that they're in a relationship with him. But we know, just as they were unable to keep the law, we're no different, which leaves us with a real problem. Because God says that if we fail to meet the standards of the law, we deserve punishment. You see, the law, it's like a mirror. If you look into a mirror, you see what's really reflected. And if we look at the law of God, we can see that it reflects exactly what we are. It shows us that we fall way short of God's call for perfection, and he must deal with this. God's not like some soft-hearted police officer who pulls you over and he says you're speeding and you say, oh, I won't do it again, or it was just a little bit over. God's not like that police officer. He demands justice. God is pure and holy and perfect and he doesn't change and he won't just lower the pass mark for what he requires. I remember doing high jump at school and there would be people, they'd be going up to the bar and trying to jump over and sometimes there'd be kids at the end of the bar and they'd be holding each end and they'd see a kid who probably wasn't quite so good and they'd come up to the bar and they'd grab hold of the bar and they'd make it really low so they could get over, you know, to help with their self-esteem perhaps. But God's not like that. He doesn't get the bar and just lower it so we can get over. God is not like that. And Jesus is teaching that God is not in the business of lowering the bar when it comes to righteousness. His pass mark does not change. And when Jesus says in verse 19 that we are not to break the least of these commands, he's again reinforcing that God, who is pure and perfect, still requires perfection for those in his kingdom. What this means for us is that God's law demands that we live pure and perfect lives. And Jesus has been saying that he hasn't come to abolish the law or its requirements. They still demand perfection. And what he says next would have probably come as quite a shock for those listening. He says that there's something seriously wrong with the righteousness of these guys called the Pharisees. And this would have been shocking because these men, everyone would have thought that they they had their spiritual act together. They looked like they were following the Old Testament laws meticulously. And now Jesus says in verse 20 that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees have a kind of righteousness, but it's not the kind that's demanded from God. It's not pure. It's not holy, and it's far from being perfect. So what's wrong with the righteousness of the Pharisees? And one of the things that Jesus criticises the Pharisees for was their attention to their external displays. 
And Jesus says about them in Matthew 23 and verses 5 to 7, a bit further on in Matthew, he says, Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. These were little boxes that hung from their heads that contained the Old Testaments. And they were strapped to their foreheads. And they had their tassels and their tassels on their garments long. They loved the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They loved to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. And on the outside, they would have looked very impressive in many ways. But they were just like a, a, like a cheap and nasty filing cabinet. On the outside, it looks great. But when you try to open up the drawers, you realise what a shoddy thing this is. The runners don't work at all. It's all rusty. It's missing the frames. You can't put your suspension files in there properly. It's no good on the inside. And the Pharisees had the, the appearance of an external righteousness, but that's as far as it went. It was far from perfect. The Pharisees had also elevated man-made rules and traditions above what was actually contained in the Old Testament. And by elevating the place of man-made rules, they were relaxing, even breaking the very rules that they were supposed to be keeping. In Matthew 15, Jesus was accused by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. This is a rule that they had made up. And in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 15, Jesus replied and said, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God has said, Honour your father and mother. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses his father must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might have otherwise received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honour his father with it. So you see, this was money that was supposed to have gone to support their parents in their old age, but it's been pledged to some religious um, fund. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Again, we can see that the righteousness of the Pharisees is way off the mark that God requires. And another problem with the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees had was they were focused on the things that had the least importance, the things that really didn't matter. Look, it's a good thing to make sure that we don't take a pen home from the office, but what about when we gossip about someone and we slander them? We're actually robbing them. We are stealing their reputation. Jesus again says in Matthew 23, and he's talking about the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important things of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter without neglecting the former. We're reminded here not to be focused on the minor matters and not to neglect what really matters because that's not the kind of righteousness that God requires. So if Jesus has said that there's something inadequate about the righteousness of the Pharisees and that our righteousness to exceed theirs in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven, then what should our righteousness look like? 
And we've just been looking at these so, the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees. They were trying to do everything that the law required, but in fact they were lowering the standards of the law by following their own man-made rules. They had piled so many rules on top of the laws of God that they had lost sight of the true meaning of what the law required. What Jesus is saying, that the righteousness from those in my kingdom is not to be less demanding, it is far more demanding. It's even more demanding than that of the Pharisees. And we've seen that the standard of the law demands perfection and that the Pharisees have failed to reach these standards by lowering that pass mark. And now Jesus goes on to explain what the the righteousness of those in his kingdom look like. And he has a series of examples, and they begin at verse 21. And they go right through to the end of this chapter. And he uses this formula where he says, You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard it was said, and he quotes an Old Testament law, but I tell you that the standard of your righteousness righteousness is to be far greater. And in verse 21 he says, You have heard that it was said, do not murder. And this would have been something that the Pharisees would have taken very seriously. But that's as far as it went. As long as they hadn't murdered anyone, then they thought that they had kept this part of the law. But Jesus says that the standard of his kingdom is much higher than that. Look at what it says in verse 21 and 23, or 22 and 23. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, and this is just a term of abuse, and it means empty. It's like calling someone an airhead or a blockhead. He's answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, murder doesn't begin when someone picks up a weapon and takes it out and uses it on someone. Murder begins in the heart when someone's angry. And so we need to examine ourselves. Okay, I I assume that you haven't actually killed anyone, but what about the anger that we have that's directed at other people? What do we like when someone cuts us off in traffic? Are you furious with them? Hey, you idiot, that's, that's my lane you're getting into. And what about when we're in a restaurant and someone stuffs up your order? I didn't order a flat white, I offered a skinny latte, idiot. What about people here in church who have got a different opinion on some minor theological issue or the way things that are run or even if we appoint someone or not? How dumb is that person? They can't even see things my way. You may not have murdered anyone, but the fact is you may as well have. You may as well have murdered them if you're calling people idiots and stupid and fools. And if words like that are in your vocabulary, then you better be careful about how you're breaking the commands of Jesus. And if you're angry with another Christian or they've got some dispute with you, I've got to ask you in all seriousness, what are you doing here tonight? I mean, what are you doing here offering your praise and your worship to God when you've got some unreconciled issue that needs to be reconciled? Jesus is saying that your worship is nothing more than a sham, if that's the case. 
We can sing, my Jesus, I love you, but that's really just a show or a pretense if you're angry with another Christian. See what it says in, what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave that your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Are you more interested in an outward show, like turning up to church each week, or about being in a right, loving relationship with your fellow Christians? And the last two verses, they're really just saying that if there is some conflict between you and someone else, don't let it fester, don't let it build up into something that becomes more and more difficult to resolve. Get onto it straight away. Do it as quickly as you can. The standard of righteousness that Jesus demands for those in his kingdom is to exceed that of the Pharisees. Remember, they've lowered the bar, but Jesus raises it to a new level. His followers are to be like those described last week in verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we're members of this kingdom, then we need to pursue the kind of righteousness that Jesus describes with every breath that we take. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are we just happy to have an outward appearance that goes no further than being skin deep? If someone were to scratch the surface of your life, what would it look like? Would it look like that filing cabinet I described before with all its problems when you opened it up? Or would you find something smooth, a smooth, high-quality running system, all the files in order and with no rust? That's the kind of righteousness that we are to strive for. And before I finish tonight, I want to make it clear that what I've been saying about righteous living is that our performance will in no way get us into God's kingdom. I said earlier that we had a problem because God is unwilling to lower that bar. The standard that he demands from us is perfection when it comes to following the law. So how is it that we can get over this bar, this bar that is impossible for us to get over? We, our lot, we live lives that fall way short of that standard. But God, but Jesus has fully met the demands of the law by living a perfect life in obedience to his Father. Jesus not only lives the perfect life that we should have lived, but he dies the death that we deserve on our behalf to pay the penalty to meet God's demands. Can you see what this means? We can do nothing to contribute to what God, Jesus does in paying the debt we owe. The only response that we are to have, it's found in the very first verse of that sermon that Jesus preached. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need to recognise our spiritual poverty. We have no righteousness of our own, that we are spiritually bankrupt. In the book of Romans, Paul cries out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that's how we are to respond to the reality of what we are. That's how we are to respond. Our righteousness, our right standing before God does not come from our attempts at living a good life or trying to keep God's commands. It comes from Jesus who fulfills all the requirements of the law. And if we accept that Jesus is our righteousness, the wonderful thing is that he does something amazing. 
Firstly, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. But then he begins to transform us. He gives us a new nature. He gives us his spirit to empower us. We no longer have to try and live like the Pharisees whose righteousness was only on the surface. Jesus changes not only the surface, but he also changes our hearts and our minds, our whole beings, so that we are able to live those pure and holy and righteous lives in every way. So my prayer tonight is that if your righteousness is only external, then you'll see how spiritually poor you are and that you will long to have your inadequate righteousness replaced with the perfect righteousness of Christ. My second prayer for you is that if you're already in God's kingdom, that you will hunger and thirst for righteousness in living lives of purity and of holiness for God's glory. Let me pray for you.